0: This is the Education Conversation, a podcast about how individuals and organizations create change in education. I'm Ryan Knight I guess this week is Eileen Rudden. Eileen is the co-founder of Learn Launch. Ned Tech Catalyst organization in Boston. Eileen had a long career in the private sector before her education, and one of the things I learned in recording this podcast is that Eileen was one of the main drivers behind the adoption of email in the workplace through her work as a senior VP for Lotus Notes. So you can send your complaints to Eileen, that's E-I-L-E-E-N, at justkidding.com. Eileen is also a prolific board member, having served on boards like Brown University, Lesley University, KnowledgeWorks, Achievement Network, Ed Pioneers, and a lot more. Eileen has been a pioneer throughout her career, and she tells a bit of her story here. Eileen organized for equal admissions for women as a college student at Brown, then rose to the top in male-dominated industries, co-founded the most diverse startup accelerator in the country, and is now driving the adoption of personalized learning in Massachusetts. This conversation is about blazing trails, measuring impact, and fostering innovation. I know you're going to enjoy it. After you enjoy it, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes and share the podcast with your friends. It'll help more people learn about the conversation. I want your feedback and guest suggestions. You can find me at ryan at E-D-C-O-N-V-O. Okay, let's go. Eileen, thank you so much for joining.
1: Nice to be with you, Ryan.
0: Yeah, I'm very excited about this conversation. Um, Why don't we start by, you can sort of walk me through your background and how you came to work in education.
1: Uh, Sure. Well, I am part of a generation of uh, women who uh, came to, you know, I graduated from college in 1972. And I was uh, a student of math as well as American studies. And, you know, my mother was a nurse. Um, and the last thing I thought about doing when I got out of college was being a teacher. Um, I was, you know, sort of eager to get out in the into the workforce and, and sort of show what women could do. And... Um, <laughs> You know, was a a computer programmer as my first job. Um, Started a newspaper. uh, Went to business school. Worked at the Boston Consulting Group, a uh, major consulting firm, and then basically settled into uh, high tech uh, for 25 plus years. Uh, And as part of being part of the software. Uh, world. Um, I worked at uh, at Lotus for fifteen years um, and led uh, Lotus notes actually for quite a number of years. And that was sort of I call it the mother of collaboration software, but also um, you know introduced uh, email actually. I uh, to you know, it, it, for people who don't like emails, it actually didn't even come into very common use until the mid '90s. Um, and I was one of the people that, that uh, developed and introduced that. And I, um, in I left Lotus. I was the CEO of a company that got sold to eBay. I then was working on putting phones on the internet, and that company got uh, got sold. Uh, in 2007 and I decided to to spend full time so now it's almost 10 years on education at that mm-hmm. point kind of almost like a retirement project it sounds crazy but <laughs> <laughs> um, I felt retirement. Like, <laughs> I felt that that was um, again it's our it's her our, actually our, our country's biggest economic problem as well as our biggest social problem because uh, education is such a you know it is the uh, it is the opportunity. it gives people opportunity to ha- uh, be upwardly mobile. It gives them you know just sort of rich um, a rich life in the sense of just understanding more and becoming a lifelong learner. And I just felt like this is this is a place that creates impact. So, you know, well, So what what was that? You know, like maybe thirty five years after I got out of college and didn't want to be a teacher, (laughs) I realized that that really this is this is where it's at. And um, you know, I obviously have immense respect for the people that have spent their entire lives in um, in education, uh, and you know, had to learn a lot fast. Um, I had been on the board of Lesley and on the board of Brown University. But um, I actually was recruited by the Broad Superintendent's Academy, and that was a crash course. It's kind of like getting a a Ph.D. without a dissertation. Uh, And then I was recruited by the uh, Chicago Public Schools, and I served for two years as the chief of college and career preparation, which there was running their career and technical ed program, which was very advanced. And also their college access, and we changed it to college access and persistence program. Um, and that um, I learned an, an incredible amount you know, on the ground in Chicago. I think I visited, you know, over a hundred hundred schools and worked with um, those great principals and teachers there. And ultimately came back to Boston, where you know I spent most of my my life. Um, And said, you know, having not been a teacher, principal, uh, uh, superintendent, what would be the maximum best use of me in education? And I realized that my background in technology was actually something that I shouldn't put aside, um, that it is something that was incredibly needed in education, Uh, the experience that i would had. Uh, you know, sort of built, not just building products, but also I had served on a number of um, company boards uh, that i had seen major industries and how they had gone through the adoption of technology and how it had transformed them and that basically education was really on the cusp of this same uh, need, uh, this same kind of transformation and, uh, you know, basically felt like, hey, I, I, I really need to help make that happen in a way that reflects the true needs of students and educators. You know, so I basically decided to do this. And then five years ago, I, you know, gathered up um, some partners who were interested in the same thing. And uh, in particular, Gene Hammond, who has been an investor. In this, uh, She's been an angel investor. She started a tech company back in the 90s, I think, and sold it and had been an investor. She was an original investor in Zipcar, and she had mm-hmm. been a volunteer also. And so I am more of an operator and Jean more of an investor, and we decided to start learning lunch. You know, we started mm-hmm. just convening people and having... Uh, classes and starting our conference, which you know started uh, five years five years ago, and uh, bringing people together. And then then later we we found another group that wanted to start an accelerator, and we raised raised money so that we could support uh, ed tech entrepreneurs. Uh, we and we we started an ed tech co working space, which is now at two eighty one Summer Street in Boston, and. Meanwhile, you know, over the, over the years, I think we've worked with about 31 companies. I have increasingly spent most of my time with our nonprofit Learn Launch Institute. And beginning about a year and a half ago, we uh, started attracting grants. The Gates Foundation um, uh, named us a member of the Learning Assembly, and we have been working with 10 Boston public schools on their journey to personalized and blended learning with a a focus on bringing together professional learning communities of teachers that are interested in moving in that direction. And then uh, in December, we launched the Maple Consortium in partnership, a public-private partnership with the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. And that uh, Maple is the Massachusetts Personalized Learning Ed Tech Consortium. And um, they're already... 26 districts that represent one out of every six students in the in the Commonwealth have have uh, decided to join that consortium because they really want to move uh, in the direction of more personalized learning and want to learn from each other. And this is complicated. So um, you know the we now have these three areas of of the institute now has these three areas of. Of work in the ecosystem, and we actually have a fourth in that we're incubating a, a, a sort of round table of uh, senior level folks who are from industry but also uh, at top level educators from universities and large systems who are interested in taking on a project working together. Um, so that's almost like a fourth mm-hmm. initiative for the institute. Anyway, that's a That's a, that's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. So
0: going back to the the beginning there, so you were in pretty early as a computer programmer and then in, uh, newspapers and then business school and then consulting and then technology, you know, through late seventies, eighties, nineties, those are all very male dominated industries at that time. And even now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it, it's, it's actually kind of, it's actually gets kind of depressing to sort of <laughs> see the dialogue about, you know, sort of diversifying tech today. But, um, you know, sort of having lived, lived through that. And it actually is kind of a shock going from 80 20 male to 80 20 female as I've been working in, in ed, um, you know, very different, uh, very different cultures. Yeah, very male-dominated, very male-dominated, but there has always been um, networks of women that looked out for each other. And just like today, there are you know, networks of people of color, networks of, of um, LGBT or networks of whatever, of people that help support each other when they are in a situation that in which they are a minority. Um, and you know it's it's healthy, but there's did, more. Did you
0: have to change your approach at all going from one to the other?
1: That's an interesting question. You know, I probably am still very, you know, I, 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 you know, sort of I've I've grown up in in, in business, which is more of a, um, it, it is a data-oriented, um, you know, sort of show your evidence. You know, make your logical argument, uh, kind of background, and I don't think I've changed that. Um, I think that there's right. um, more heart um, in um, in education, you know, because it is a, in, in some respects, it's a service business. Working directly with people and supporting and nurturing their learning, and um, mm. that is that is an aspect which is completely critical uh, to success, those relationships that educators form with students and that you know encourage them. so it is you know it is it is different um, it is it is different.
0: People talk a lot about or have talked in the past, perhaps a little bit less so right now, about taking lessons from business and applying them to education. Having spent the majority of your career in business, are there things from education that you would wish that you could have taken back into business?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think educators know um, more about learning. And a lot of times, you know, any leader is usually involved in change. And change is about people's learning. Mm. And, uh, you know, adult learning, you know, adult change is about adult learning. And adult learning theory, you know, is extremely important, I think, in any kind of change. And um, I think business, you know, still is oftentimes about people standing up at the front of the room and talking at And, you know, learning is about people kind of digging in and embracing and getting uncomfortable. And for adult learning anyway, it's often, you know, sort of doing something differently and and experiencing that different behavior. Um, You know, there's a lot. There's a lot to be learned.
0: Yeah. I I totally second that piece of it. The number of times where I've been helping work with a former teacher uh, get to a level of mastery Mm -hmm. of a new non-teaching role where they've come eventually to realize, Mm -hmm. oh, this is like teaching (laughs) in terms of um, how you're going to come to manage adults well and how you're going to come Mm -hmm. to lead lead change well, it's it's all very – it's less – Um, different than you would think.
1: It isn't. I mean, the whole, you know, kind of leadership as coaching is is a very interesting, I think, model. And so I I don't know that there is, you know, know, and at the same time, uh, you know, from educators have to, you know, they have limited resources and they have to use the resources in the best way, you know, so that's what there is to learn from business is, you know, the, the resource allocation thinking and that sort of thing, um, mm-hmm. you know, but but in terms of working with and leading and managing people, coaching is, you know, at least as important. And so there's so much to be learned.
0: Having been on the 20 side of that 80-20 gender split, do you take, uh, uh, do you focus on diversity in your work in ed tech? now
1: well you know i i have been I have to just tell you something about what when i was in college i led And this may you know it seems ancient but for (laughs) my life you know i led um women of brown united for equal admissions to brown so Mm. back then it was Tw- you know, tw- I think it was maybe twenty percent women and eighty percent men, or twenty-five and seventy-five, something like that. If you can believe it, back then. Right. Okay, so you know these discussions about pipelines and whether there are, you know, qualified people out there. I mean, I've experienced that through my entire sounds life. Sounds
0: familiar. Uh, yeah. yeah,
1: it sounds familiar. And you know, sometimes. it's, you know, sort of opening up Ivy League institutions and elite schools to women, you know, certainly has happened over these past years. And it certainly um, is happening for people of color, but I would say less for people of whatever race, color, or creed uh, who are coming from, um, Low-income families, and that's that continues to be, you know, a, a, a challenge um, in the work of, of of supporting educators. I think I'm very you know, sort of concerned about that because the um, I, I think again you get into this whole tech situation again, which is tech. Is still more male and and still more white, um, and that is not representative of you know today's American or global um, student population or a teaching population, and so it is it is an issue. I mean, we had a, you know, we have had sessions on it. Um, but, you know, Learn Launch itself actually has a much higher proportion of. Uh, and the entrepreneurs that the accelerator supports I think we have the highest proportion of women CEOs and founders um, mm. um, of any accelerator that's out there so it's not mm. like it, it, it it's it's all white but I think there's still work to be done and I think I think that a lot of it I mean I can relate to as a just as a woman coming up through tech and that if you don't have the confidence to get out there and take a risky job or to go out there and, you know, sort of basically have to live on your partner's salary for a while and not know whether it's going to succeed or not. It takes a lot of confidence to do that, but I am sensitive to it because I felt like I actually have had two entrepreneurship experiences myself I did uh, start a newspaper right out of college um, while I was working as a computer programmer. And I did that as part of a group. And so it didn't seem as mm. strange. But then, you know, I worked for other people for most of my career. And I'm now having an entrepreneurship experience in that. You know, I co-founded Launch five years ago. So, you know, just... At that point, as I said, it was like my retirement project. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I said, I'm just going to do this. <laughs> I've got to do it, you know? No, it, which is actually a hallmark of an entrepreneur. It's like you say, like, I have to do this. Right. No, you know, I don't know that anybody else has this same confluence of passion and experience. And, you know, I just have to do it. And as it's turned out, we've been able to attract, um, whether it's investment funds for the entrepreneurs or grant funds, you know, to support educators. Um, You know, that's a kind of a hallmark of entrepreneurialness, but I kind of laugh and sort of think, yeah, it took me to, you know, get into my 60s, you know, before I had the chutzpah to do it. And that's, you know, that's just, you know, one person's story, Um, you know. So I was quite accomplished in my professional life and that's what gave me that base but you know i love seeing a lot of entrepreneurs you know kind of starting off when they're in their teens or 20s or or 30s or whatever age you know it just takes that push to get out there and try
0: so if i think about the work of learn launch um i think about it as having two main sort of goals one is community building slash facilitation, and the other is actual startup catalyzation through the accelerator. Does that sound right to you? <laughs>
1: um, I would say that in the past year and a half, we've also added, you know, support, support to educators. Mm. Sort of. And that's sort of a third that's sort of a third. Both our Maple and MassNet um, activities of the Institute are actually
0: coordination,
1: educator support. Well, they're, they're actually sort of PD. Although they're community building, they're still also community building. So, you know, Maple is a community of people that want to move in a certain, of districts that, uh, and that want to move in a certain direction. So
0: hmm.
1: I suppose you could say it's a part of that.
0: And so the way that this ends up resulting in student learning is through uh, a theory of change where there's interest in these topics and there's people who are interested in providing those services and you're able to make connections that wouldn't have been made before in a way that's much deeper than introductions, but is actually through PD and facilitation to drive the change piece of it and adoption piece Mm -hmm. of
1: it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I think originally we thought, you know, if we connect innovators, they'll learn from each other and the supply of innovations, you know, and the demand for them would increase and that we would be catalyzing and energizing, you know, the community, Mm. um, and enabling, you know, the growth of enthusiasts and visionaries, you know, that create kind of the bright spots that, um, you know, the bright spots that would encourage other people and that they would, you know, we believed that the the bright that the the innovations would result in increased student achievement. But as time went on, we also felt like, hey, you know, this this is education. Research is needed, you know, to expand the evidence base regarding, you know, how these things work. Because to bring in more than just the early adopters it needs to be simple to, solutions need to be simple to adopt, and there needs to be an evidence base.
0: And so that's very focused on impact and on student achievement. Um, on mm-hmm. the accelerator side, do you, yeah. to what extent do you weigh the potential for impact with the potential for financial returns in evaluating companies?
1: Um, we, both. Uh, we, we evaluate both because the reality is I don't, think that um, don't I don't think that educators are interested in purchasing things that don't have an impact on student you know it doesn't have an impact on student learning
0: so one of the areas where I think that this question of um, financial return versus impact is the most um, interesting in education technology is the sort of sales cycle or the choice of who you sell to because an organization that is good at buying technology, that's a very different skill than an organization that's good at using technology. And so if you're focused on impact as an ed tech company, um, that can have implications for who you target for your sales and potentially how fast you grow.
1: Mm-hmm. So, well, that, Yep, I think that's a, That's definitely an issue for the entire ed tech sector and that this is really different You know, schools, for the most part, are adopting things primarily in September, you know, sometimes in mid-year. But it's very different than, say, consumer um, Internet, where, you know, people could adopt things 7 by 24 by 365 days a year. You know, you or I could decide to use a new app, you know, (laughs) very quickly, but schools don't do that. Don't do that. There's a cycle to how they adopt things. And that affects most ed tech companies that are selling to schools or or universities or, um, you know, that they, there's a seasonality. I mean, and the consumer side, it's kind of like people who sell toys or movies, you know, where something like uh, 80, you know, something like 70% of all the purchases happen, you know, around the holiday time. Um, which is kind of amazing, um, but that's what happens with with ed tech companies: is that the you know the biggest sales times are May through August, and um,
0: there, there's the seasonality to it, but there's also the question yeah. of um, if I have the joint goal of financial return and impact, then as I'm se- making the decision of whether or not to sell to a potential client. Um, for the financial return piece, I'll have to assess, like, you know, most for-profit companies outside of education, is this customer likely to be satisfied by my product and continue to rebuy it in the future? But for the impact side, you also have to say, and are they going to use it well and deploy it such that students will learn? So, Yeah, I
1: don't, I don't know. I think, that, I think the for-profit companies are asking the same thing.
0: In, in I, terms you of know, impact? I,
1: well, they're asking, you know, if, if it's shelfware that s- somebody doesn't use, they're not going to... Today's business models are software as a service, okay? And the basic of a software as a service is people renew every year. And if they don't use it, they won't renew. Right, so, so for
0: you, there's a higher degree of alignment between use and impact.
1: I, I, think, I think there is. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know... You know whether whether a company chooses to be for profit or nonprofit, they they have to be sustainable in some form, right? Which means that their revenues have to equal their expenses or exceed their expenses. And um, sometimes companies in ed tech choose to be for profit because they believe they can access external capital that will help them to grow. I mean, I know right now you know some foundations are are helping support some portions of edtech but when i you know when i started learnlaunch and you know 4 or 5 years ago foundations would kind of look at me cross-eyed and say mm-hmm. what you know technology they weren't ready to invest and so you know for for an entrepreneur what they how they decide to structure themselves as a for-profit or non-profit is a separate decision I think from even just impact, you know, I mean, there were no, you know, it's about how do you finance your vision? How do you get started? How do you fuel it? Um, as well as, um, you know, sort of what do you, you know, what are you doing? Um, ultimately. And I think that a lot of ed entrepreneurs are very motivated to have an impact, um, um, I'm sure that there are folks that are just out to make a buck, just like there aren't any in any mm-hmm. business. But it seems to me to be um, much more, or if you just looked at the universe, many more folks that are in the ed business, you know, sort of
0: care. And I think that the community building and um, sort of facilitation and training that Learn Launch does. Has a positive role here in terms of um, you know helping teachers who are the ultimate users of technology get access to it by aligning you know the different um, decision makers and helping them to improve their buying practices um, in a way that can support you know users and uh, implementation of technology.
1: Yeah, I mean we're trying. We're definitely trying because it's sort of. You know, sometimes there are certainly entrepreneurs out there who just feel like, "Hey, I have to create this, and it may, and and it may solve, it may solve a you know a, a teacher's problem, and it may not. But if it doesn't, then they're not really going to last very long." Um, and you know, teachers have so little time; they're they've got so much on their plates, trying to get you know create resources that really do solve their their issues is, 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 is really challenging. Like right now I'm really being very thinking a lot about the integration of supplemental ed tech tools with, you know, high, um, with curriculum,
0: Hmm.
1: with, you know, standards-based curriculum and how to do that. You know, how is that happening so that, you know, because teacher's time is extremely limited. It's probably the, the single most important scarce resource in, in the school, um, you know. So how how do all these pieces fit together in a coherent way, and in a way that makes the maximum use of the teacher's time? I, I'm just that's one of the things I'm obsessed with right now. Just thinking yeah. about that and watching that. And, that's um, one of
0: my biggest questions too. Where um, you know I am very focused on impact, and I had previously thought that each. Specific tool should be able to demonstrate that it has a measurable impact. So Mm -hmm. we'd work on evaluating specific tools, Um, and I'm starting to challenge myself on that a little bit. Where, um, for example, I worked previously in international development, and there's idea that there of a like a package of interventions. So Mm -hmm. an organization may give a you know very very low income like very poor family. You know, a goat plus a savings account plus business training plus a cash transfer, you know, and some other things. The idea being that, like, if you gave the family just one of those, it wouldn't be enough to raise the family out of poverty, but the full package might actually lift the family out of poverty in a sustainable way. So, there's a question in some ways of who's responsible for the impact the developer of the technology or the purchaser of the technology, where the purchaser of the technology maybe trying to put together a package of a program that uses different tools in different ways in coordination with non-technology tools with, you know, normal curriculum, with management practices, etc. And that that bundle of things is what has the potential to have an impact, whereas if you unbundled it and tried to assess each component of it individually, it might not.
1: That's absolutely right. And I mean that's also one of the challenges of ed research. Hmm. You know, is it is it this one thing, is it how it was implemented? You know, it you get in trying to measure these interventions, you get into, you know, sort of age old ed questions like, was it implemented with fidelity? And all that kind of stuff.
0: Right. Um,
1: um and I mean, I I think I think you framed it ex- extremely well. Is is that, uh, and it's what makes it ho- so difficult to judge exactly what is the secret sauce in in education.
0: So does that, um, so where I take that in a personal way is, uh, that ed tech needs to be complementary to. Um, you know, a state accountability framework such that organizations that are successful are empowered to increase their scale and serve more students one way or another. Um, but there's a completely other view of um, what you're doing. There's only so many hours in the day. and This other view, other mindset would be there's only so many hours in a day, so if you're already a high-performing organization um, then you might want to use less EdTech in opposition to the point of view I was just pointing out where you're like maybe a high-performing organization that's very seamlessly plugging in very different EdTech softwares, but if you're a low-performing organization or low-performing school then um, the uh, opportunity cost of trying a new educational technology intervention is lower. So, if the sort of counterfactual of how you're spending that time is, you know, we're a really high performing organization getting great results already, that um, is a higher bar to say we should try a new ed tech enabled approach to something versus if you're an organization that is lower performing, there may actually be even more potential for you to grow um, in terms of improving results uh, through ed tech.
1: I'd say there, I have two comments on that. One is, that um, high-performing organizations usually are high-performing because they're always looking to do continuous improvement. Mm. So, you know, sort of presumably they're looking for things that will add, you know, to their performance. That's number one. But number two is, you know, you almost kind of articulated Christensen's theory of disruptive change in which um, basically the, the short version of it is that the underserved are the ones that are the most likely to adopt disruptive innovation, because they just they don't have any other alternative. And so, whether that's like alternative schools or homeschools, uh, you know, homeschool parents or um, you know other groups that basically you know haven't haven't been well served and haven't had access, um, you know, just the way, for example, the on a more online a um, higher ed has been more adopted by working adults. They weren't served. You know, they they, they couldn't quit their jobs and go, uh, you know, go to school full time. Um, and so they adopted the technologically mediated versions that enable them to combine education with their work. And so, you know, that's the theory of disruptive innovation, which is that it is the unserved that are the most likely. To adopt, you know, major new solutions, but I think, you know, again, I also compare that with how the high-performing organizations say high-performing.
0: I think the application of that disruptive innovation theory to education is um, is just uh, one of the like most difficult um, problems to wrap my mind around personally because that theory goes in the private sector that you know the solution is sort of incubated by the underserved and then it um you know improves to the extent where it can eventually reach up and serve um the customers that were you know previously the incumbents um you know sort of cash cows and it can replace the incumbent in that way but in education the combination of a couple of factors one being the extreme localization of education uh the the difficulty of growing a single organization that would serve many schools across the country hasn't really happened Um, it makes it very difficult for the disruptor to scale to replace the incumbent and then the other is the difficulty of determining what quality actually is in education so a lot of the online education providers have really dismal track records um, particularly the for-profit ones you saw a lot of Enforcement increased enforcement against online um, education providers and higher education under the Obama administration. You know, basically for false advertising, and in K twelve, a lot of those online education providers have have really poor uh, academic results.
1: Yeah, I mean that. Yes, I mean today's news is you know that Purdue just bought Kaplan University.
0: Hmm. It's,
1: very intriguing there's lots of um you know views views on that
0: so as a technologist as a technologist uh then uh so much of the uh belief around technology particularly the sort of passion that you hear around technology out of silicon valley is really deeply deeply in a fundamental way rooted in this disruptive innovation theory and if that doesn't totally apply in education It needs a different framework.
1: Well, you know, I just I I think a lot of people want to want to be disruptors more than, you know, do do you know what I mean? I think there's a difference between it's it's you know you could say it's part of the bro culture, right? Like people wanting to be disruptors. I think that's a different thing, and whether they're developing something which is actually going to make a difference and that does move. Uh, student outcomes um, is is different than whether there are than whether unserved groups actually have been the first to adopt these solutions, whether they're good or not mm-hmm. you know so i I actually still um, I, I don't I, I think the theory has a lot to be learned from in terms of you know how hard or easy it is to um, um, reach a particular audience, but I agree with you that 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 just like any field, there are some good solutions and some bad solutions. You know, there are good movies and there are bad movies. There are good books <laughs> and there are not so good books. And right. there are good ed tech solutions and there are bad ed tech solutions. And there are people that you know sort of want to disrupt, and then there are people that want to have impact. And some of those actually might want to do both Mm -hmm. or could or can do both you know what I mean so it's I I am less hung up on that I just you know kind of um I'm just less hung up on that because I think from a from a perspective of you know people who are unserved are more likely to you know reach out to to try something Mm -hmm. new um and then as I said earlier you know but At the same time, um, you know, have a high-performing organization stay high-performing, and this is one of the things that I've had one of the conversations that I found so interesting with you, is because the you know Boston charter school sector is so Mm high-performing, and they have been late in terms of adopting some of these tools because they are so high-performing, they maybe haven't had the 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 need to look for change on the other hand, that's not to say that they aren't using these tools. And, you know, you and I have spoke about, you know, how, how, um, unlocking potential is using various tools. Um, so, and Massachusetts in general, I mean, Massachusetts is a very high performing state, although we have huge achievement gaps and opportunity gaps. Um, you know, so we haven't rushed into this arena either. Um, on the other hand, that's what I find fascinating, though, about, you know, so, so many of these districts wanting to move in this direction is, you know, even in a high performance. And my, our board member, Michael Horn, again, it, it, you know, sort of described it in a very interesting way and said, gee, you know, in many other states, the people moving towards more ed tech and more personalized learning have been, um, you know, had they either had severe constraints, like in California, you know, $6,000 student. Mm-hmm. Um, or, uh, on, or, uh, being extremely underperforming and wanting to try a different model. Whereas in Massachusetts, if, if even the high performing districts are looking to move in this direction, um, you know, would that give it legitimacy or would it show, um, you know, sort of that it has broader impact? I mean, I think that's very interesting. You know, he sort of flipped it on its head. I thought that was a really interesting um, way of looking at it. But, you know, there's there's lots, uh, you know, this is all, you know, people are feeling their way. I don't think that anyone has um, invented um, the, new, the new model yet. I mean, I've been to some schools in California, and I think that's really interesting, and I'm watching... You know how that is attempting to spread their model, and we'll see, we'll right. see how that works. Um, you know, whether alt school is something that will spread or not, or whether, you know, existing schools will will gradually adopt, um, you know, sort of tools that work for them and and hone their craft, and 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 cont- and move along a cycle of continuous improvement. You know, I think we're we're in the middle of of trying to figure that out, and it's just extremely fun and exciting to see great educators. Um, you know, some of them split off to sort of say, "I've got the solution," and I want to bring it into the marketplace, and others just are really keen to test out the various solutions that are being developed and seeing what works to take their organization. To a higher plane to support their students better, to engage their students better, uh, yeah, and and that's what that's what makes it exciting. Is this? It's a period of ferment to sort of see how you you know how you can move from from, from talk to action.
0: So before we wrap. Um, what is one individual or idea or organization that you think is doing great work that you think deserves more recognition?
1: Well, gosh, that is, it is a tough question, but I... You can do more than one if you need to. <laughs> um, I really think that, you know, Leap Innovations in Chicago is mm-hmm. doing really great work. And, you know, they're already getting some recognition. And you may know I, I asked Phyllis Lockett, who is the founder, to, you know, to be a keynote at our 2017 Across Boundaries conference um, so that she would have more recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, her organization is working, has worked with I think, over 70 schools in the Chicago area, charter, um, Catholic district schools all kinds of schools I think she even has some suburban schools that now want to work with her um, on how to move towards more personalized learning supported by tech but it's led you know by by teachers it's a human right. project not a not a tech project um, I think that the work that she's doing is great I think you know I think digital promise the work that digital promise does is really, Helpful. I mean, I, I think it's been like five years that they convened the League of Innovative Schools, but mm-hmm. they've also done a lot of work on research. Um, you know, they're working on micro credentials. Um, you know, they've participated with us in the uh, in the Learning Assembly. Uh, you know, just very thoughtful support for educators who are who are you know sort of in this process. Uh, You know, and, and, um, you know, Phyllis Flackett and and Karen Cater, who's the leader of Digital Promise, really great people. Um, And that's, those are two that I would, I would highlight.
0: All right. Thank you so much for making the time.
1: No, I'm happy, I'm happy to, Ryan. And thanks for, thanks for, for asking me.
0: Thank you to Eileen for joining the conversation. You can learn more about Learn Launch at learnlaunch.com. Eileen is at Eileen Rudden on Twitter, and I'm at RG Knight, R-G-K-N-I-G-H-T. Again, please rate us on iTunes and tell all your friends to tune in. Our theme song is in Time by Patrick Lee.